All right, so we are at the absolute end of the What We Believe series, and today we're talking about the tribulation and the rapture. As I mentioned this morning, and maybe some of you did uh, see it, uh, there's somebody that predicted the end of the world is going to come on Saturday. Uh, so we'll see about that, because I'm pretty sure, what's the, the batting average for end of the world predictions so far? Let's see, the end of the world has ended oh, zero times so far. So guessing this is probably wrong. I tried to make heads or tails of it. There was some article on Fox News uh, that I, I read, and it had everything from uh, Hurricane Harvey to the solar eclipse and some kind of mysterious planet X that's going to come and crash into the, the Earth. So rather than get into the details, I'll just tell you, you don't have to worry about it. One, because it's gibberish, uh, but also because we know from Scripture that this person can't know when the end is coming. You just, he just can't. And this is one of those beautiful things that whenever somebody tells you that they've predicted or they've you know, uh, worked their, their Bible magic to find the secret code, you know for sure that they are wrong because there are specific things in Scripture that tell us that we can't know, that no one is going to be able to figure this out. So let me bring this up. One of the things, this is a little bit bonus, okay? So this is before the main part of your out, outline, but this works pretty good. We think uh, this will tie in very well as an introduction to remind us that the time of the return of Christ is imminent but unknown. Imminent means that it could happen at any moment. I M M I is imminent. That means any moment. There's nothing specific that has that we know about that has to happen before the end comes. Uh, Imminent with an A means that it's uh, that's that's a different word. So that means that it's uh, uh, diffused or uh, all present. But imminent means that it could happen at any moment, and it's at an unknown time. Let me give you some verses that talk about this. In Matthew 24, 36, you have a statement by uh, Jesus saying that no one knows. In fact, he says, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. And he goes on and says, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, this was when Jesus was on earth in a state of humiliation, and he was operating uh, through his, uh, his human knowledge here. I would assume that now that he's returned to glory, he, he knows. But uh, here, he was saying that even the Son, he did not know. And it goes on, he describes it a little bit. And then in Matthew, uh, there's some more verses that you could look at when you get a chance. In Matthew 24, uh, a few verses later with 42, he says, therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. If you know when it's coming, then you would stay awake for just that part. But Jesus says, uh, he goes on verse 44, Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So even if we just had that, we would say Jesus' intention here is that no one knows. This is going to be a secret. It's on purpose that it's a secret so that we always have to be ready. So we should be living our lives now that Jesus could be coming back today or he could be coming back tomorrow or next week 
or we need to plan that he may come in another few hundred years, and so let's plan ahead as well, because we don't know when it's going to be. There are other verses that say similar things. First Thessalonians 5.2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So again, coming when it's not expected. You also see the phrase day of the Lord here, which is going to be something that's going to come up when we talk about the tribulation. And 2 Peter 3.10 also talks about coming like a thief in the night. Uh, there's also, uh, there's several places. James 5.8, be patient for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And Philippians 4.5, the Lord is at hand. So you see this any moment return that Jesus could come at any time. His return is, is imminent. We always have to be watching and waiting and be ready for that. This is going to be another message where it's going to be kind of drinking from the fire hose and I'm going to overload you with a lot of things. And so I apologize for that. I've tried to make this digestible, but still giving a good amount of content. Uh, at the same time, there'll be others of you that may be leaving, wishing that we were able to go even more in-depth on this. And there are different uh, books. You know, maybe one day we'll have a extended series or Sunday school classes. You could always... Uh, Get yourself a copy of John MacArthur's Biblical Doctrines and read the, the section in there. Uh, there's other good places uh, that you could look through because there's, there's a lot of meaty and interrelated issues. Uh, so we don't know when the Lord's going to come. I know you might say, well, doesn't the Bible talk about there being signs? Well, th there is, but two things to keep in mind. It describes the signs as kind of birth pangs. That sometimes, you know, when uh, a lady goes into labor, uh, there's the, the initial uh, birth pangs, uh, but you don't know exactly is this just the beginning, how serious, especially with the first, uh, you know, child, is this uh, a false alarm or is it going to be a ways? So there may be certain signs that we have that uh, when it talks about wars and earthquake that may intensify and they let us know that Christ is coming. But there's never a point where we know when it hits the threshold that, well, it's definitely coming, you know, next week or something along those lines. Plus, I think that there are many other signs and events that can also take place during the tribulation period. And so that will allow uh, what we're going to talk about being the rapture as something that can happen at any moment without warning. And some of these other things can still take place after that. So, Continuing to kind of introduce this, last week we mentioned that this is part of our doctrinal statement in the uh, church constitution in the confession of faith. It states that we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture and the pre-millennial return of our Lord. Last week we talked about uh, what it means that we hold to the pre-millennial view we believe that Christ will return prior to setting up the millennium, this thousand-year literal reign on earth. In our doctrinal statement, actually, it's under the statement on the Son of God. We had read again last week that it specifies that Jesus will return prior to the tribulation period where his saints will be caught up to meet him in the air and return with him to heaven he will return to this earth prior to the millennium in power and great glory to establish his kingdom. So with a little review, last time we looked at a few different, uh, these views as far as 
the millennium, which again we said means a thousand years. Uh, so the top one is the view that First Baptist has that uh, right now uh, we're, in, we're in the church age, the New Testament church age. There'll be the second coming, and we're going to see that's, that's simplified. So it doesn't break it down there into when's the rapture and the tribulation and battle of Armageddon and these different things. Uh, this is kind of a simplified view at this point. But then you have the millennium, and we said there's going to be some things at the end that uh, there's, uh, Satan is released from uh, the, the abyss where he's held captive. Uh, there's a final climactic battle where he is uh, uh, completely uh, uh, defeated, thrown into the lake of fire uh, forever. There's the great, great white throne judgment, and then eventually the, the final state, which is the uh, new Jerusalem on the new heavens and the, the new earth. So that's what that throne represents. I did have um, a good question last week afterwards. Someone asked me, well, in some of these other views, like the post-millennial and amillennial, you know, where do they have the great white throne uh, judgment, and that was a good question to clarify. Basically, for the other views, the second coming and all this, it's grouped together. So a lot of the other views, it's very simplified, and all this kind of happens at, at once or one, one batch. So uh, a lot of times they view it just as one judgment rather than distinguishing between uh, multiple judgments and uh, sometimes very simplified. So I thought that was a good question. Uh, some other things kind of left over from last week might be wondering, well, talk about saints being resurrected and ruling during the millennium. Well, who are they ruling over? And what we're going to talk about a little bit today is I believe that the Bible teaches that there will be uh, mortals that will go into the earthly kingdom. So there will be resurrected saints and if you're a Christian here, that would end up being, I believe, us as well, returning with Christ and uh, helping to rule under Christ, but rule over uh, the population that would be on earth. And so we'll talk about kind of where would these people, uh, where would they come from? Why does God let Satan go at the end of the millennium? Why does he release him? That's a good question. You wonder that well, he's, he's locked away for a thousand years so he can't deceive the nations. Uh, that seems to be a good thing. Let's keep him locked up. Let's keep that. But yet Satan releases him. And I don't know exactly why God does the things that he does. We don't. But one thing that I've had suggested, which I think could make a lot of sense and something good to think about, is maybe this. You ever notice that so often people blame the sin in this world and the evil um, not on the human heart, but just society? They say, well, people are basically good. It's just the, the structures of society are bad. And if we were able to take people and put them in a good environment, then everyone would be good. They would be nice to each other. You wouldn't have all this evil. You wouldn't have all this dysfunction. If you have this period where Christ is reigning and you have this perfect society for a thousand years, and during that time, at least people outwardly would need to be conforming to, uh, to be obeying him. Obviously, not everyone is uh, genuinely saved or else Satan wouldn't be able to raise up an army when, he come, when he's released. Uh, but at least you have, on the surface, you would have the, the best 
functioning society you could if Jesus is the one he's in charge for a thousand years. But at the end, Satan's released, and he's able to uh, get everyone that, well, that's not saved uh, onto his side for one last final battle. And I think at least one thing that that teaches us is that the real root of the problem isn't out there just in society. I mean, we contribute to society being a mess, but the reason society is a mess is because human hearts are a mess. And so the real problem, we can't just say it's, it's society. It comes from the sinfulness of our human hearts. I also point out, when we talk about the great white throne judgment, it's not the same thing as what the Bible refers to as the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat. Uh, the bema was the award bench where the judges for well, the ancient Olympic Games sat, and they would award prizes. So it refers to the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.10, Romans 14.10, that this is a uh, judgment of reward for believers, whereas the great white throne judgment is, um, has to do with the uh, uh, judgment of unbelievers especially. All right, so this was kind of from last time. So now we're dialing into the premillennial view more, and specifically what we're going to specify is the, what we as a church uh, hold to the pre-tribulational view. So again, pre means before, and tribulation is, we're going to say is this time period of uh, just, just great trouble on the earth when God's uh, wrath is going to be poured out upon humanity. And we'll see that it's a seven-year period, and it's uh, the pre-tribulational rapture view specifically. And so this means that the, the rapture will occur uh, at, before the tribulation period. There are other views as well. This is uh, the pre-tribulation and post-tribulation are the two most common of the views. I mean, there's some where they have a mid-tribulation view and a, a pre-wrath view. I mean, you could get into all kinds of different uh, versions of it, but the two most common would be pre and, and post. So in this, uh, there's the rapture we'll talk about. Seven years where this, uh, all of the different plagues and disasters uh, recorded in the book of Revelation take place. And then the final second coming. Now, we may refer to it that way. I would refer to all of that as the second coming, just in different stages, that it's kind of like a mountain range, and there's, uh, even in this mountain range, there's different peaks, uh, different mountains. So it's kind of more an expanded view. And you do see that a lot in Scripture, where it seems to be just one thing, and you get closer, and kind of like a fractal image, you realize it's more detailed than it was originally. Uh, I, we've said this already, Jesus, it looked like he had one coming, and then we realized he has a first coming and a second coming. So we're just saying that there's a little more detail as we have uh, more revelation that is, is given to us. Then a thousand years, then eternity. So the, the post-tribulation view would look something like this, that the tribulation will just start, um, that it may be a literal seven-year period. The rapture and the second coming, in that view, happen... Uh, basically together. So Jesus Christ uh, comes back, the saints go to meet him, and then immediately return with him at that time for him to come and to establish his kingdom. And then 
uh, in the post-tribulational view, if it's still pre-millennial, then he would uh, go immediately into the, to the millennium. So we'll look at that at the end, and I'll, at the end I'll give some reasons why I think that the, the pre-trib view has uh, stronger evidence than the, the post-trib view. But we should talk a little bit about the tribulation and what that is. So when we talk about the tribulation, what is the tribulation? We will say that the tribulation is a seven-year period in which God's wrath is poured out on earth prior to Christ's final return. This is what we're referring to when we talk about the, uh, the tribulation. And in Revelation chapter 4 through 19, I believe describe things that will be going on during the tribulation period. In the book of Revelation, you have the first uh, three chapters, which are letters to different uh, churches, uh, to Ephesus, Pergamum. And then you have, uh, John has this vision of thrones in heaven and, and scrolls and seven seals. And in the way I would interpret it, that from that point until you get to chapter 19 and the, the return of Christ, this is a description of the tribulation period and things that happen there. So you have things in there. Uh, it talks about the beast and the false prophet. See, the beast is also known as the Antichrist. And so Antichrist is this, this figure that is a, a false Christ, a false messiah that will um, get the, the world to worship him, thinking that this, this is the messiah, but he's, he's a false messiah. Now, in 1 John, it says that there are uh, many antichrists and that even back in those days, those that preached heresy had the spirit of the antichrist, but it also refers to a, a final antichrist that would be coming. That's 1 John 2, 18. Um, in Daniel 7, 8, uh, the antichrist is the, the little horn, in Revelation, uh, the beast, 2 Thessalonians 2.3, referred to as the man of lawlessness. So you have that uh, is going on there. You have these different judgments. There's the seven seal judgments, then the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments. And we cannot dial into these to talk about them. So you can look through and find those uh, in the book of Revelation sometime. But these, these horrifying cataclysmic things that, that will happen. Uh, just massive uh, destruction, uh, plagues, uh, all kinds of terrible things. Uh, it talks about you know demon hordes being released upon the earth, uh, intense time of persecution. Um, Revelation talks about the, the mark of the beast, and if you don't receive it, you are not able to engage in, in commerce. Uh, different theories about how that will work out. So, you have that that is taking place in um, the book of Revelation, refers to that. It is specifically called the tribulation in a few places. Uh, Jesus refers to it in Matthew 24, 29. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then it talks about the, uh, 
Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So this is his return. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, which I believe is, that's not a reference to the, uh, to the rapture there. And then it, uh, another place where it talks about uh, great tribulation in Revelation 7, 14, said these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It is referred to in many places as the day of the Lord. And so uh, it's not uh, one day, it's a time period. But there are many times in the Old Testament refers to the, this coming day of the Lord, this day of judgment. And there are times when the day of the Lord is um, used of uh, judgments that happened during Old Testament times. But there are other times where it also reaches ahead towards the ultimate day of the Lord that would come at the end. And we know that these um, references, such as in, in uh, quite a few times in the book of Joel, Joel 2.31 and other places, uh, that, that's right, Joel, I said your name, <laughs> that uh, it's not fulfilled just with you know, the Assyrians and the Babylonians uh, because it's still talking about this in the New Testament. In Acts, well, there's a reference to the Joel, uh, Acts 2.20, but in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, 2 Thessalonians 2.2, 2 2 Peter 3.10, we see that this is something that is, uh, that is still future. So there's a sense where there is going to be a, a degree of tribulation that we face in our lives, we should not think that we get out of this completely, but there is still a, the ultimate tribulation that, that will be coming. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul says, um, well, starting with verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He's saying there might be people that are trying to fool you and saying, no, it's already here, it's already here. And uh, he'll go on and give reasons why that's not the case. But Paul is saying this is still a, a future thing that is going to be happening. So I just bring this up to say that uh, day of the Lord is another reference to this, uh, this time of judgment. In Jeremiah 37, it's referred to as Jacob's trouble. That's how it's referred to in the King James. Uh, in the ESV, it reads, Alas, that day is so great that there's none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, reference to Israel, yet he shall be saved out of it. And then one of the most important references is in the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, it's referred to as uh, Daniel's 70th week or the 70th seven. And I want to turn to that passage because it's very important. If you're wanting to study end times issues, you don't start with the book of Revelation. You want to start in the book of Daniel. And it's very foundational uh, to understand these things. And we're not going to be able to look at everything, but just a, uh, a sampling. But there's this prophecy of the 70 sevens. 
Some translations may say 70 weeks. It's literally 70 sevens. And so it's a, a week is a group of seven. But we're going to see it makes sense that these are periods of seven years. And we'll see this is where we get the fact that the tribulation is a seven-year period. So Daniel 9, 24 and so uh, with this, the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel, and he tells him this. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, okay, that would be the Messiah, he's the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat and a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, so it's up to 69 weeks total at this point, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy this city and its sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right, now we could spend a long time just looking at that, but what you have here is this prophecy that there would be, uh, well, it, there's an initial starting point is when, remember, Daniel's in captivity, Jerusalem has been destroyed, and he said the starting point of this prophecy is going to be when the decree goes out uh, for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And this is an amazing thing, and I wish maybe we'll do a whole message on this sometime, just, uh, just the apologetic value of this. It's amazing. This is one of the things that for me, when I was wondering, is there something to Christianity? You know, when you go through, you grow up and you wonder, is this just a fable I've been told? But then uh, reading this prophecy uh, that's in the Jewish scriptures as well, the, even people that don't believe in, in Christ, and this is something that blew me away. Because in Nehemiah 2.1, there's Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild the walls. And we can know by uh, different dating that um, this would have been 444 B.C. And so if you take 69 sevens, okay, and you do the math on this, and if you convert it from uh, 365 uh, 0.25 day years to the Jewish year, which was 360, and you do all the math, it gets complicated, but it comes out exactly to 33 AD. So it just nails it with uh, Jesus's, uh, really his, his last week coming into Jerusalem, and when the, the anointed one will come and be cut off. There's just no way, I think, that this could have been predicted ahead of time if this were not from God. So this is an amazing thing. But this is 69 of the 70 weeks. So what we see is there's another 70th week remaining. 
So the view here is that this the 70 week is something that is a remainder week that has to be dealt with later on. Uh, that right now we have a time period where uh, there's a special focus on, on the Gentiles, kind of referred to in Scripture as time of the Gentiles. But this 70th week will be a time where there's a focus that is returning to uh, the Israelite people. And so this is where we understand that the tribulation is this seven-year period. And so we can get some other things with uh, this, some other information that it talks about. The, uh, there's other information in Daniel I wish we had time to look at. Uh, but that the tribulation um, at the beginning of this would be a treaty that is signed. I think it would be the Antichrist rising up this world leader, probably over some kind of restored Roman Empire, and probably guaranteeing the safety of the people of Israel, or at least pretending to. And at this point, they view him as a good guy. He is guaranteeing safety. Uh, probably think it makes sense because there's been some kind of climactic thing that people are really shooken up about. Uh, which I think would be the case if the rapture has happened before this. And so at this point, he, he is adored by, by everyone. But then halfway through, it's several times in Scripture, it talks about something happening at the, the three-and-a-half-year mark. And that seems to be where the Antichrist, and Satan is working through him, uh, where he goes into, I think the temple is rebuilt at this time. He puts an end to the sacrifices there. And he um, declares himself to be the ruler and demands for himself to be uh, worshipped. And this would be reference to what's sometimes called the abomination of desolation that happens at this point. And so you have this, you have um, uh, during uh, the tribulation, as we said, all of these uh, different uh, cataclysmic things. At the end, there's the battle of Armageddon. And Christ returns in glory in Revelation 19 and defeats uh, the Antichrist and his forces. So we have that. Second question we're dealing with, we have it in the notes there, is what is the tribulation, what is the rapture, and when is the rapture? So the rapture, say the rapture is the event referred to in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where those who are in Christ will be Quote, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So this is a very important passage. It would be good for us to turn uh, to this in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians. First and Second Thess- Thessalonians have a lot of information about end times events. I think we have a chance to especially read through uh, 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 4, and on into verse chapter 5, where it talks about the day of the Lord. And remember when Paul wrote this, he didn't have chapter divisions. It just kept on going. And this is a passage where uh, we receive a lot of comfort from this um, when we think of uh, our beloved in, in Christ that have died and gone on before us, that it says, starting with verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those that have died in Christ. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, so Paul knew this because God had told him this, uh, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And therefore we will always be with the Lord, therefore encourage one another with these words. The phrase there, caught up, in Latin, when that got translated, uh, the Bible got translated into Latin, it was the word raptura, and that's where we get the phrase rapture from. Uh, So I would say no matter what view you have, you have to deal with this somehow. So I think everyone, even if you have some other view, should believe in the rapture because it talks about this being caught up together to meet uh, the Lord. And I really encourage you to keep reading into chapter 5 where it talks about, it says, now concerning times and seasons, and it talks about the day of the Lord. Uh, we've read that already, fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We'll come back to that in a little bit. So another place that talks about uh, this would be 1 Corinthians 15. And in starting with verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. When Scripture says that, it means the word mystery means a previously unrevealed truth. So he's saying, I have some new information I'm revealing to you here. And Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So he's saying there are going to be some believers that you're not going to physically die, because sleeping there is a reference, again, to believers dying, but you will be changed. It goes on and says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So there's this, the resurrection will happen where we are given immortal bodies like Jesus has. And he's saying that as if we're alive at the point that you won't have to die but you will be you will be changed you undergo transformation that way instead and as this is some important um, uh, information that we are given i think sometimes we need to make sure i don't know what degree you've read different novels about the end times or different movies and some might be better than others i'll confess i've actually never read any of the left behind books Uh, So whether that's bad or good, uh, you can be the judge of that. But sometimes you need to say, okay, what is from uh, fiction and what is uh, actual biblical teachings? Um, Sometimes I've heard people refer to the rapture as like the the secret rapture. Honestly, I'm not quite sure where people get that from. I don't know why it would have to be a secret thing. I see the rapture being, if it's being a caught up, I don't imagine this as something where we just instantly vanish. Um, Jesus, when he was caught up, he, he rose into the air. And so if Jesus is returning the same way that he left, um, that he is coming down and we, I think, will physically shoot up to, to meet him. That's how I imagine this biblically, what it's like. Um, it's kind of a weird thing, but sometimes you, uh, in different rapture movies, people are raptured and there's a pile of clothes that are left. Um, will we be raptured naked? I hope not. Uh, and I hope that is just, uh, there's fiction. And there might be other things too that 
I have to say, is this uh, really what Scripture teaches, or is it maybe some guesswork that's involved? As far as the rapture, one other thing we should add is I think Scripture also shows that there are differences between rapture passages and second coming passages. At least the second coming, Jesus is the final climax to his return. So, and this is where I see these, uh, that it seems to be predicting two different things. Like I said, just like in the Old Testament, when sometimes it's predicting the Messiah is a suffering servant, sometimes a conquering king, then later on you see, oh, it's two different uh, aspects, to two different comings. And so there are, are some passages where, in the rapture passages, it describes Jesus is coming for believers, whereas in second coming passages, he's returning with believers. In rapture passages, he's returning in the air. In second coming passages, he's returning completely to the earth. Um, in rapture passages, he's coming and bringing blessings and salvation. Uh, in second coming passages, he's bringing judgment. The rapture passages don't have reference to setting up the kingdom, but the second coming passages do. The rapture passages have a focus on believers, where the second coming, it's a focus to all people. And in the rapture passages, uh, you, you see, as we talked about, passages that talk about coming like a thief with no signs. It's, it's immediate, unexpected, where other passages do reference uh, signs. So I see this a distinction, which to me fits pretty well with viewing the rapture as kind of a first stage to the second coming and then the, the final you know, glorious appearing coming later on. So that's kind of what the rapture is. Last, when is the rapture? We've already said that uh, according to the pre-trib view, Christ would return prior to the tribulation which would mean that would be good news for us that if you are in Christ, that would mean that you would not go through the tribulation here on earth. Now, before I get into some of the reasons why I think um, are good reasons for believing in a pre-trib rapture, I want to say one that I think is a very bad reason for believing in a pre-trib rapture. And that's just if you don't want to suffer for Jesus. If you don't want to go through suffering in this life or tribulation or trial, because Jesus has promised that that is something that we should be expecting. And most Christians throughout church history have suffered much worse than we have right now in, in western Michigan uh, this period of time. And we have brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world that are suffering uh, terribly right now. And we're not in this tribulation period. So Christ has told us to expect tribulation, to expect suffering. If we don't have that, that's, that's the happy exception that we should be very grateful for. And we should be praying to, uh, for, for there to be relief. We should be praying that we can live uh, peaceable lives. But we should always be expecting that there's going to be hardships and there's going to be different trials. So if your main motivation is, well, I don't want to go through these terrible things, um, that's not the best reason to hold to this view. And I would say, too, no matter how bad the tribulation is, being saved from hell forever is a much bigger deal than being saved from, uh, from seven years of uh, bad things, even though it will be worse than anything that has happened before. 
but hell is eternal. So be thankful for that. So a few of the reasons, and again, we're just giving a summary here. You're going to have to dig into this and spend time thinking about it. But one we've already mentioned would be the difference between rapture passages and second coming passages. And to me, there's, there's weight to that. There are other passages that promise exemption from divine wrath. For example, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Also in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we look at these just by themselves, you could conclude, well, these definitely are talking about the tribulation and not going through that time of wrath, because the whole tribulation is this great time of wrath that's being poured out. But if you just looked at them by themselves, you might also say, well, couldn't this be talking about just God's wrath? that we're saved from when we trust Jesus so we don't have to go to, to hell and be condemned forever. But I do think that when we look at this in 1 Thessalonians, that the context of this is talking about uh, the end times, that is talking about uh, the wrath to come. And so we had the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, we read that where it talks about the coming of the Lord, it talks about the rapture, and then it goes on immediately into chapter 5. Like I said, there's no verse and chapter divisions. And that's where it goes on immediately to talk about, uh, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, tribulation, will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come on them as labor pangs uh, come upon pregnant women and they will not escape but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So let us, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith, and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I do see this as being in the context of the day of the Lord. So in addition to that, there are other passages, one in particular um, that uh, pre-tribulational uh, authors will point to, that it's also promising us exemption from the time of wrath. So it's not just that God will protect us through the tribulation, but uh, to actually deliver us out of it. And one that gets pointed to uh, the, the most would be Revelation 3.10. says, Because you have kept my word of a patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And the Greek word there to keep you is, is ek, it means out of. And so they point to that and say, well, this means to be, to be you're, not even, you're not just kept through this, 
uh, but taken out of this time of wrath to not have to go through it. And so the whole of Daniel's 70th week is, is divine wrath uh, from beginning to the end. In Revelation 6, uh, 16, it refers to it as the wrath of the, the Lamb, and that's even at the beginning period, and that's why I think it's the, the whole seven-year period. Many also point out that the, the technical term church is not mentioned in Revelation after uh, chapter 3, and that could be also an indication um, that the New Testament church has been removed at this time. Also, I'll give you two more this one. Uh, there seems to be a necessity for there being an interval of time between the rapture and the second coming. There's certain things that there needs to be time to be uh, allowed for. For the rewarding of the saints, the readying of the bride, the church is the bride of Christ, and there being this seven-year interval, I think better explains um, allowing for these things to take place. It allows, I think, for the distinction we've already mentioned between Christ coming for his saints and returning with his saints. And I think one other thing that, for me, I found pretty persuasive is that if it's between the two views of pre-trib and post-trib, if you have the, if you have Christ returning and then immediately there's the rapture and then he returns and, and sets up his kingdom, you have a problem with different passages that talk about there being people that are uh, not glorified in the millennial kingdom, that are still experience death, that still experience normal mortal life. And you have to say, well, where do these people come from? And uh, I'll explain this just kind of quickly. And there's different prophecies um, that seem to indicate that during the millennial kingdom, uh, there is uh, not glorified human beings. So they're, they're still in the stage that we are. And uh, in Isaiah 65, it talks about the building of homes, planting of vineyards. Uh, in Isaiah 65, it also mentions uh, sickness and death of sinners. And you also have this issue that at the close of the millennium in Revelation 20, well, where does Satan gather this army from if there, unless there are some people that are not glorified? Because you and I, once we are glorified, once we're changed, uh, when Christ returns, whether that's uh, we're, we're raptured or whether we're resurrected, you don't have any sin in your heart anymore after that. So you're not going to change. You're not going to follow Satan at that point. So where does Satan get this army from? So what would happen is if there is this uh, period of seven years between when all believers are raptured up and changed, because after that, we're immortal. We're, we're also not going to be given in marriage anymore. You don't, you're not going to reproduce uh, Jesus mentions that, that believers will be like uh, angels after the resurrection, Matthew twenty two thirty, And so there won't be procreation at that point. So there would not be, you know, little mortals coming into existence from believers. And for unbelievers, they're all wiped out. The wicked are all wiped out at the end. So, but what would happen is that if you have the beginning at the rapture, when the rapture happens, that the current believers are, are raptured, they're changed, we're, we're taken out of the way. There's, uh, I think, biblical evidence that what happens is there's a mass revival among the Jewish people. 
It references in uh, Revelation uh, 7, I believe it is, uh, the, the 144,000, these uh, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, and, and God knows who they are, which I think it makes sense that they are Jewish evangelists, and that through them comes this mass revival among the Jewish people that will be finally turning to Christ during this period. Now, a great many, and th- th- I believe there'll be Gentiles saved too, but there'll be uh, just on whole the, a great turning of the Lord with the, his Jewish people. Many will be martyred, uh, but those that survive will enter, the, um, will enter the millennium with normal human bodies. And at this point, it seems like they will live long, very long lives. They probably they won't die unless there's some kind of outward rebellion. And so I think the population will rapidly increase, uh, very much so. You might have the case where there are more people by far alive during the millennium than in all human history uh, put together before then. Uh, so that could be the case. Uh, so I think that's what is going on, that the uh, people that are saved during the tribulation, they enter the millennium with normal bodies. Believers that are, are raptured and changed, I think we would rule with Christ. It will be a much different thing than it is now. Um, but it will be on this earth with uh, Christ reigning and ruling. So I think that works and it makes sense if the rapture happens at the beginning, but if it happens at the end right as Jesus returns, I don't see where these people come from. So to me, that's persuasive. Uh, For you, it may or may not be. And the last thing, as we already mentioned, the return of Christ is imminent. That could happen at any moment. And I think the the pre-tribulation view, I think, fits with that very well. Because otherwise, if there's this uh, period, the seven-year period before uh, Christ returns, it would be difficult to say that he could return right now. We know that wouldn't be the case because there are other things that need to happen. You don't have the Antichrist. You don't have all these things that are are going on. Uh, But if it's kind of two stages, the initial stage, which happens uh, without warning, and then a seven-year period until the, the completion of the coming, then I think this all fits together and makes sense. In conclusion, God wins. And if you forget everything else, just take joy in knowing God wins at the end. Jesus reigns. And because of that, have hope. Be ready. The Bible keeps telling us that our motivation should be that we seek holiness because of this. We want to be found serving him and doing well when he returns. And keep on working until he comes. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks. We thank you so much that you have told us the beginning of the story and you've told us the end of the story. And we're so glad that even though we will have to go through difficult times, even if we don't go through the the great tribulation, we know there are going to be hardships and we live in a world where it gets more and more difficult to be a Christian and to live for you. But we can take hope knowing how the story ends and knowing that Jesus wins, and that if we are on Jesus' side, we get to be on the winning team as well. We long for your appearing. Maranatha, may Jesus come. Amen.